Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. Social proofing is if you see lots of people talking about it, if you see lots of people commenting on how good the latest Apple is, if you see lines outside the store, you're being affected by everybody else wanting the the products. It's hard to know exactly how high quality your phone is. You don't open it up and really kind of check the guts and see what's going on there. So we use price as a very strong signal of that. It talks about the three Fs. Have you ever heard of the three Fs, right? Probably not the three Fs that you're thinking of. So maybe you can <laughs> maybe you can tell me. So Ryan, I don't know if you know, but I quite like Apple. Have I ever mentioned that? Uh, I'm sorry, who is this? And you you like what now? I feel like this is news that shouldn't just be dropped. Breaking news. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I need more warning than that, Colin. I've heard that once or twice in the last eight minutes. So Ryan, what I thought would be good was we normally look at things from a, here's a theory how does it apply in the business world, customer experience? How can you use it to gain growth, etc.? The idea that I had was maybe we should reverse it. Maybe what we should do is look at a company and go, what theories, psychological theories are there that they are using to either make them particularly good or particularly bad? And I thought we'd try with Apple today. Does that sound reasonable? I like it. Yeah. So some of the same concepts and ideas we've been talking about, instead of focusing on one idea, we'll focus on one company and see how the, how many ideas they implement. Yeah. And we've said this in the past. There are a number of organizations that are doing things and they're clearly being successful or, or otherwise. And they don't necessarily say, oh, we're doing this because of the availability heuristic. They're just testing it and it works and then they carry on doing it. Academia has put labels on things, which is very useful because you can then start to understand those things and then start to say, well, how do they play out? But the key for me here is going, look, here's some practical tips, okay? Here's some practical things that are happening daily where you can see behavioral economics psychology playing out in the real world make sense i like it and by the way just as a reminder to everybody up front we are now doing a podcast summary so the podcast summary will highlight the key takeaways from this podcast and we'll also have the recommended actions as well and we upload that onto our website which is beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary that's beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. One of our listeners suggested that we did that because then you've got that all written up. You can share it with people in the team and everything else. So as I started to think about why do I like Apple? 
Yeah. <laughs> Did you write a sonnet? <laughs> I should have my guitar, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah. I should have my. I can see this being in C major. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the first thing is there's this whole piece for me about tribalism. And I think you mentioned last time we were talking about this. Do you remember the you mentioned about the Mac campaign, the Mac and PC campaign? Yeah, where it, it got to be the point where the tagline was "I am a Mac" versus "I am a PC." Yeah, I've always felt that Macs are different to Windows. Well, I'm going to try to resist the temptation during this podcast to wax lyrical about all these things. When you start to look at that, I think for me, it's definitely about being part of a tribe. In the early days, it was like being the underdog. Yep. And I think there's some there's some psychology going along there, which is it's us against the world, and here's this group of people that have got shared beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. I think the other part for me is that, you know, every time I go into an Apple store, which I have to tell you is not often enough, I should set myself a target. <laughs> but it feels like you're going into a club is the way I've always described it. It doesn't feel like a store. And I think that Apple have gone around helping revolutionize the way that people shop. It's a venue. You know, you're not going to get a word in edgeways here, don't you? Oh, I, I understand <laughs> that I'm, I'm speaking now to a religious adherent. And so I just realized I've been going on for 10 minutes now without letting you say something. That's fine. The point I was going to make was that we actually did a podcast on the endowment effect. And one of the things that we talked about was how people go in and use the products. The geniuses, the Apple employees are told not to chew people off of them and but let them to play it so they feel like they're owning it. I'm going to shut up now and let you say something. That's right. So the endowment effect says that when it feels like you own something, you tend to value it more. And, and you're exactly right. The longer people play around with your technology, the more it starts to feel like it's theirs and the more painful it would be for them to give it up. I know we've got a whole list of things to talk about, but tribalism is, I'm glad you listed that first because I think it's so key to the Apple brand. What's interesting to me about the tribalism of Apple is tribalism often happens in instances where you're in the minority, right? And so you feel like you need to form a tribe to insulate yourself and protect yourself. We're in a highly polarized political climate and there's a lot of tribalism going on in the U.S. and politics, actually in England too. But if you look at the numbers, like a large group of people are now now consider themselves independent, right? So even though you have these tribal factions, they tend to get smaller and smaller. What's interesting in the Apple case is that they are, by some measures, one of or the largest player in a lot of these markets that they're in. And yet they've still been able to maintain this tribalism. And I can't completely explain it because, like I said, it goes against some of the theories of tribalism. I remember there was a Samsung ad that showed people waiting in line for the next iPhone. And some guy was walking by with his Samsung or was in, he was in line with his Samsung and people were asking him about how cool his phone was. And they said, oh, you're going to upgrade to the iPhone. The line was, no, no, I'm just holding the place in line for my parents. <laughs> his parents came because they were all excited about their iPhone. And he left with his super cool new Samsung. I had thought, I don't know what that ad did to Apple's market share. 
But from kind of this tribalism coolness perspective, I thought that was absolutely devastating because if your parents own it, now it's no longer, that's no longer the tribe you want to be a part of. And yet people still do. So Apple's been, tribalism so important and they've been able to maintain it despite the fact that they've gotten huge, um, which is just really, really interesting to me. And I, I wish I could explain it. Yeah, and I, and I think you're right. I think one of the interesting bits is that it's changed from being small. Yeah, from the outside to the inside. Yeah, comparatively small to where they are now. And part of that, I guess, and, and by the way, to the listeners, we've done individual podcasts on a number of these theories, which you'll be able to listen to. But one of the other parts of all of what we're talking about here is social proofing. Mm-hmm. So social proofing is around that if you see lots of people talking about it, if you see lots of people commenting on how good the latest Apple is, if you see lines outside the store, blah, 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 basically you're being affected by everybody else wanting the, the products and using the products. And therefore you think, well, if everybody else is using it, then it must be good for me. Yeah. Lines outside a store is is almost the prototypical example of social proof. And Apple gets that all the time for free. This is just free advertising is the wrong word, free evidence of the superiority of their product every time they launch a new product. Because you see other people are super into it. And that I think has been another means of success for Apple. They leverage social proof very effectively. And therefore, this again, we did a podcast on this a little while ago, the availability heuristic. Mm-hmm. So, which basically means that, well, in fact, you tell everybody what it means. Oh, sure. You bring stuff up and then dump it on me. So that Absolutely. I have to come up with these I just thought to my, I was starting to feel guilty that I was talking too much. So. <laughs> the availability heuristic is the idea that we evaluate the likelihood of things or the worth of things based on how easy it is to bring them to mind, how easy it is to remember them happening or to imagine them happening. If you see lots of examples of Apple being used by cool people or in cool places or being effective or or being easy to use, then that will affect your likelihood estimates that your Apple product will perform in a similar way. No, absolutely. I think the other part of that for me is that clearly ties in with social proofing part, which is if it's all out there all the time and you're you're seeing how people are reacting to it and everyone's talking about it, then you want to feel part of that and that's feeling part of the tribe and everything else. All these things are related. And I think that part of that ties into a subject which I know you know a hell of a lot about, which is price imaging. So when I think about Apple, I think quality products yes you pay more yes they're more expensive than others however the quality is really good yeah and in fact apple's been super aggressive about making sure that their products are never discounted they have such channel power that they can dictate to their retailers to their their suppliers that if you ever discount an apple iphone we're not going to sell it to you anymore. And that's such a strong threat that nobody ever puts the iPhones on sale. So even if you buy it at the various places, it's always the same price. And I think that part of it is exactly what you say, kind of the image around price. It's hard to know exactly how high quality your phone is. You don't open it up and really kind of check the guts and see what's going on there. So we use price as a very strong signal of that. And so to the extent that 
that's a part of their strategy. They've been very effective in doing that. But to your point, I think it's the other signs that they use to get that issue of quality over. So one of the things I think has been interesting is, and I think they were probably one of the first companies to do this, extending the experience to the opening of the box. Yeah, yeah. So if I think back to the first iPhones, and even now, I mean, there's a whole genre of people doing it on YouTube, the opening box experience. But I think Apple were literally one of the first. And that has got to be, if you just think of the quality of the box, the way it's packed, all of the components in there, again, it just exudes quality, doesn't it? Yeah. So it, tying this to one of our psychological principles, you can think of this as, as a heuristic. Heuristics are these rules of thumb, these these decision shortcuts that we use. A lot of times there are things that we really care about, like the signal quality or the memory or the, the way that the phone performs. But a lot of these things are difficult to measure directly or to know how they're going to work until you've used them for a long time. And so we use heuristics like design. If the boxes are that beautiful and the experience of opening it is that well thought out, then that is a heuristic we can use to assume that the rest of the phone must be great, right? Whatever's going on inside the phone must be top-notch because, I mean, look at the beautiful packaging. So that goes back to your, I always remember you talking about when you're going to make a complicated decision, then how do we do that? And I always remember you talking about when you're voting for somebody, you look at the likability of somebody. In other words, could I go down the bar and have a beer with this person? Because actually making a decision on who you're going to vote for is actually quite complicated because of various different policies in there, pro some and not so pro others, et cetera, et cetera. So you actually break it down into something simpler. That's not the way I make decisions. I make decisions in a very rational, You have optimal. huge spreadsheets, don't you? Exactly. Which you then ignore. <laughs> No, that's exactly it, right? You're using something easy in the place of something that's more difficult and more important. And I think that design very much plays into that. People will sometimes knock Apple's design focus instead of focusing on things that actually matter for performance. But the reality is, I mean, for a lot of screen resolutions, we're getting to the point now where the screen resolution is higher than the resolution of the human eye. A lot of the the speed differences and computing power are difficult to assess moment by moment. But the design, the design anyone can see and assess immediately and easily. Training your frontline team on how to create memories in your customers by evoking their emotions. Beyond philosophy's unique and proven training methodology, Memory Maker Training. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. Yeah, and I think when you're talking about the design, another example, because I'm going to jump to this one, which is the attention to detail. So if I think again about one of the big things that Apple do, it's the attention to detail. So for instance, the rounded corners on the iPhone, they try to patent, okay? And again, it's those little things. And again, we've done a podcast on this, which is why small things 
actually have a, a significance, a, a large significance, even though you're making a decision about a $1,000 iPhone, then actually it's the small things that influence you. Yeah, absolutely. I think Apple's among the best at realizing the importance of those things. The other theory that they play into, either consciously or subconsciously, is this halo effect. So halo effect says that, which is effectively another way of describing it for me is like, or people in the brand would describe it as a brand extension. If you think about it, they started off selling hardware, but now the services for them are, I think I'm right in saying, even more of a key issue as iPhone sales start to decline for uh, numbers of different reasons. But moving into other areas that are adjacent to their core areas, which I think is key for growth as well. Yeah. So the way that Halo Effect would play into this is the idea that we draw specific conclusions about something based on our kind of overall impression about it. So if you were to go into a new category, right, if something that Apple doesn't sell currently, I don't know, memory cards, and you were to see a bunch of memory cards from a bunch of different brands, and you saw that now Apple has one too, you would be bringing into that evaluation everything that you already think about Apple. So you probably would think, oh, this is going to seamlessly integrate with everything else I've got. And this is going to be very high quality and very well designed. This is probably going to be more expensive, right? All of those impressions come with you. And so, yeah, if you've got a strong brand like that, that means something to customers via the halo effect, it, it also provides you usually with some advantages in terms of brand extensions. The example I always use is, I don't know if you remember, I bought this uninterruptible power supply. Uh -huh. And when you looked at all the details of this uninterruptible power supply, I hadn't got a bloody clue what all the facts and figures meant. But what I did know was if Apple provided an uninterruptible power supply, I would have bought the bloody thing. Because, again, it's interesting. I'm just about to even say the words. Because you can trust Apple in those areas. That's not to say, I hasten to add, that everything that Apple do I think is good and they've absolutely had some failures. I feel like this is news. I think we should all sit down for this. Colin's about to commit some blasphemy here. Go ahead, Colin. I just hope they'll forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if you pay them, they will. I've got the one beginning with A. I won't say Alexa. <laughs> she's uh, because she's Because suddenly <laughs> Alexa's machine starts shooting off. But Alexa, Google, and Siri... I use, and I have to say Siri, I think is the, the worst of the three. Yeah, what's been especially interesting from that is that Apple was the pioneer in that they came out ahead of everybody else with that technology. And I don't think you're alone in that. I think that there's generally an understanding that the competitors have have moved past them in, in that regard. The intuitive customer, I don't know if you remember when we were writing that, I actually dictated a lot of that the parts that I was writing. In, in Siri or using another service? No, on the Mac, basically. Oh, interesting. Anyway, three or four other areas that we can touch on briefly. One is the whole, for me, it's this intuitive and rational system. Okay, so I make intuitive decisions to buy Apple, which, so this is the whole premise of, of our book, The Intuitive Customer, this podcast, so you want customers to intuitively buy your product. And what does that mean? You want them to not to think about it. You want it to be automatic. 
I've already decided, for instance, that come September, I'm buying the new phone, okay? I don't know what the new phone is, but I will be <laughs> buying it, okay? And if they did pre-orders now, I'd probably put an order in for it. So intuitively making those choices up as opposed to the rational side of the brain, which is this is where the logic takes place. The We look at things much more rationally. We think about things, etc. On the intuitive side, we're quickly making those choices. And, and that's what I do. I appreciate that not everybody's the same, but there must be a hell of a lot of people that are. But again, that's interesting where how a number of Apple people do that. Or if you've got any product or service that you regularly buy without thinking about it, then you're using that intuitive side. Two other areas. One is that I wanted to mention is memory, because that's another favorite topic of mine. But again, the memory of previous interactions. So that positive memory that has been built up, which again is the Kahneman peak end rule, which says that what we remember in an experience is we remember the peak emotion and we remember the end emotion. And therefore, our key challenges around, well, what emotions are you trying to evoke? Which emotions drive most value for you? Certainly, my experience again of Apple is a bunch of positive memories that have been built by them, which therefore affect how I feel about them today. Do you feel like they've managed those memories in ways other than just like generating a positive experience? I think that there are, uh, in fact, I wrote a book about this back in 2004, uh, Revolutionize Your Customer Experience, which basically from the research we did then showed that there are four orientations of customer orientations that organizations have, how customer-centric they are. Naive, transactional, enlightened, and natural. Okay, I'm not going to go through this all now with people. Again, we've done a podcast on this and people can see this on our website. But a natural organization is someone who is naturally focused around the customer. Okay, I think Apple are naturally focused around the customer. Do I think that they've sat there and gone, right, we need to build a memory. How do we do that, etc.? I'd be surprised if they were that advanced in the thinking, although they could be. But let me tie into another area, which I think sort of answers some of your question. And it's that, in fact, the last area that I would raise about why they're good. And that is the thought and the training behind things. So we'll put a link into the show notes. But there was a blog post done a little while ago now, I think back in 2012, by Gizmod. I'm looking at it now. We'll put a link in is called How to Be a Genius. This is Apple's secret employment training manual. And effectively what they did, and this this was one of the things that got me thinking about our training that we provide, which we call memory maker training, which basically looks at how do you identify how the customer is feeling walking into the experience and how do you get them feeling something else walking out of the experience. Not going to go into our training, but the Apple training was similar and thought leading in the sense of it basically tells people how to create empathy. Okay. I say looking at it right now, it talks about 
the three Fs. Have you ever heard of the three Fs, Ryan? Probably not the three Fs that you're thinking of. So maybe you can <laughs> maybe you can tell me. The three Fs. Feel, felt, found. So a customer may say, this Mac is just too expensive. And the genius, the Apple employee, in other words, would say, I can see why you'd feel this way. I'd felt the price was a little high, but I found its retail value is much better, etc. So the point I'm making is giving people a framework to look psychologically at how to evoke emotions in customers. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So tying the some of these high order fuzzy principles down to very specific, like even down to the language that people use and the, the terminology that they're trained to use. Yeah. And so some of the training, again, that we do is similar to what they are doing in terms of things like when someone's evaluating something, they may stroke their chin. When someone's interested in something, they may move closer to that. So in other words, reading some of the more subconscious and psychological things that are happening. So obviously you've been involved in our memory maker training, coming up with some of those things. So if you want customers to feel cared for, then what do you do to make them feel cared for? You listen to them, et cetera, et cetera. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And remember that training like this is designed not to like crack open new insights for every employee necessarily, but it's more about bringing people for whom this is not intuitive up to the same level as those who are intuitively and naturally doing all of this, right? You've you've got your best salespeople who can read people like a book from day one. They're not the ones who need the training as much, but what can we do about the average employee and kind of helping them understand it? And I think your point is that Apple's been doing that well for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think they've been much more advanced than that. I mean, to your point, I think 10 to 15% of people in an organization, if you're lucky, do those types of things automatically. The majority of people in the organization, you you have to explain to them what to do and how to do it. And the way I always describe it is release the potential. Again, looking at the Apple book, it says, don't use things like your system has bombed or crashed or hang and avoid using words like freeze, but instead say unexpectedly quits, does not respond. It's stop responding, which are much less emotional phrases. So the point I'm trying to make is what they've done has been much more advanced. Yeah, And certainly with this type of thing, they've put a lot of thought into it. And I don't see enough organizations doing that at the moment. Well, I mean, tying it back to some of the things we've talked about, we've done episodes on framing effects, for example. And a lot of framing is very specifically about what words do you use to describe something. So I have no doubt that some people read that blog post or listening to the, it sounds Kafka-esque or it sounds crazy. It sounds like a Orwell to, to newspeak to say that you can use certain words, you can't use certain words. That's actually based on research that suggests that these small changes in word usage can matter. They can evoke different responses from people. So to the extent that 
people are accidentally using words that are turning off customers, can we provide them with equivalent words and phrases that might open up customers to having a better experience? No, absolutely. To be clear with everybody, I don't think scripts are the answer, okay? But providing people with guidance and saying things like, don't say the system has crashed, say it's unexpectedly quit, is fine. But a script for me is wrong because that provides too much of a constraint and it doesn't allow the authenticity of the person dealing with a customer to come out. I guess the ideal would be that by providing this type of training, you make people aware of the importance of the words that they're using so that they can kind of develop their own scripts and and be more aware of what they're saying. Great segue into our usual bit about, so what does this mean people should do? What's the recommended actions? And let me go straight into that before I forget. So one of the things that we do on our training is we give people a lot of the theory. When I say the theory, don't use the word crash, but use the word unexpectedly quit. And here's the reason why you should do that. And let's do some role play on that, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that we do is we then contact organizations and listen to what they say and get people to be sensitive about those little jarring words that you use. And this goes back to my example that I've said before, for those people that haven't heard it, of insurance company, where they were getting a number of people were phoning into the organization to place an order. And those people that were placing an order for a policy would typically phone back within three working days. And when they were placing the order, the agent was turning around and saying, that your policy document should be with you within five working days. And something like 70% of people that had that interaction were phoning back within three working days and saying, I'm sorry, could you tell me where my policy document is? And this is one of the largest insurance companies in the UK. And it was literally driving millions of phone calls into the organization. Within three weeks of us making a change, the call volume had dropped from 70% down to 6%. And what was the change that we made? We got the agents to say, instead of saying your policy documents should be with you within five working days, we got the agents to say your policy documents will be with you in five working days. That was the change, okay? Literally, the change was changing the word should to will, and it had a dramatic effect on the numbers of people calling in when you spoke to those customers, when they turned around and said, why was you calling in? The customers wouldn't say, well, because they said the word should, it's just the perception. So that's the my first bit of recommendation is to get people to start thinking about the words that they use, etc. The other parts would be just to go back and think about some of the things that Ryan and I have been talking about now. Attention to detail is absolutely key. If you tribalism and segmentation and understanding your tribe, it is absolutely key in getting people to understand how you segment for them. Thinking about this endowment effect and thinking about how can you get people to 
use your product, building it into their lives as a trial can have a big effect because where you're trying to get to is you're trying to get to people making an intuitive choice. Thoughts from you, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, my first one would be if you can manage to be Apple, you should do it. So in other words, if you can be the largest tech company in the world, maybe if you can go back in time and do what Steve Jobs did in the 80s. Bit of a (laughs) no-brainer. No, all the things that that you said. But, you know, if we were to distill it down to one thing, I think that Apple is able to pay attention to the details that a lot of firms overlook. Designing an experience around the packaging as opposed to finding the cheapest packaging solution available. And even looking for those things that can give you that proxy. So I can't look inside the Apple phone, but I can do something about the packaging that customers will see that will exude the quality that we have in the organization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, people have made a big deal out of the fact that Apple has a line on their box that says manufactured in China, but designed in Cupertino, California. Again, sending all of these very, very small, subtle signals of in Apple's case, quality, but figure out what is it that you're trying to communicate with your experience and then focus on the details. Think about all of the small things that customers are using that objectively don't matter, but that in reality do. Good. Thank you. As a reminder, we do podcast show notes. And therefore, if you just want to go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary, that's beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. You'll be able to get the key takeaways and the recommendations all down on a piece of paper for you, or an electronic piece of paper anyway. So thanks very much, everybody, and talk to you next week. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.